hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott, I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And today we are following on from our last episode on the films of John Huston, and we thought we'd change things up with a look at uh, two more John Huston films. Uh, this time it's his first and still one of his most iconic films, The Maltese Falcon, and a rather more obscure outing from over a decade later that's considered a loose parody of that film's form in the shape of Beat the Devil. So, uh, let's dive straight in with the Maltese Falcon. Drew, what's that all about? Uh, our other film today will give Scott further support for his John Huston's directorial career, was largely a free holiday scheme thesis. <laughs> and indeed, I'll be very disappointed if he doesn't mention it, we at Fuds and Film being fond of nothing so much as a running joke. <laughs> but for his first film, Huston didn't yet have the pull for such exotic locations as Campania in southern Italy, so he had to make do with a gloomy San Francisco and Hollywood backlots. It is in these environments that the tale of the Maltese Falcon takes place, based on Dashiell Hammett's 1930 novel and a remake of the 1931 film of the same name, proving that there really is nothing new under the Hollywood sun. There is even another film in between those two, almost exactly halfway of the same story. If you've not heard of the Maltese Falcon, it is of course the ship that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs, and <laughs> while it may not look like much, she's got it where it counts. Oh, I do appear to have mixed up my notes. In the most obvious and cliched way, but it amused me, so, you know, bite me. <laughs> the actual falcon of the title really doesn't look like much, though, but it does, or should have it where it counts, so it's not a totally baseless joke. <laughs> Utterly unnecessary, as the film clearly explains it within, introductory text tells us that when Malta was gifted to the Knights Templar by the King of Spain, they sent him tribute in the form of a glorious golden falcon encrusted with jewels. It never reached Spain, but has cropped up now and again throughout history, though currently it is disguised with black enamel to conceal its true value. The many-year pursuit of this treasure by the fat man, Caspar Goodman, a spectacular Sydney Green Street, inadvertently comes to the door of Humphrey Bogart's private detective Sam Spade in the form of Mary Astor's femme fatale Bridget O'Shaughnessy, who hires Spade and his partner to follow a man she claims is a rotter and doing her sister wrong. Spade's partner was shot. A grief-stricken Spade waits at least three or four minutes after <laughs> learning of this before having his name removed from the signage. <laughs> and when the man his partner was following, and the prime suspect is murdered shortly afterward, Spade finds himself in trouble with the police, with Bridget no, now nowhere to be found, and her sister seemingly non-existent. Finding Spade, though, is Peter Laurie's thief come enforcer Joel Cairo, and... Also finding Spain is a whole heap of trouble, and soon Spain is deep in a world of cross and double cross, untrustworthy women, understanding secretaries, moody shadows and charismatic villains, and, rather pleasingly, very little shooting, or hero preferring to let his mouth do the talking. 1941 saw two particularly auspicious and assured directorial debuts. And while Houston's wasn't as impactful as that of one Mr. O. Wells, it was the start of an incredible career and helped, if not birth, then codify a whole genre. The Maltese Falcon was one of the films to which the Italian-French film critic Nino Frank was referring when, in 1946, he coined the term film noir, and while some earlier films matched the somewhat nebulous definitions, Panorama du film noir américain, one of the defining early texts in the subject, referenced the Maltese Falcon as the first major film noir. 
there's still an immense amount of craft on show in the Maltese Falcon, though, even if it doesn't quite match up to Citizen Kane. Again, what does? Uh, both behind and in front of the camera, and some astonishing performances, like the aforementioned Green Street. This was his first film role, and it's a hell of a debut. <laughs> and, of course, Bogart, whose cold, hard-edged, private eye still manages to hint at past wounds that shaped his character. Impressively, too, for an 80-year-old film, it still has the power to surprise. I'd forgotten most of the details, and how refreshing to watch a film and be behind the writer, also Houston once again, and behind the protagonist, instead of a good 15 minutes ahead of them, as I often am, and without the need for nonsensical Deus Ex Machina explanations. And the plot isn't even the film's strongest suit, nor its point. The Falcon itself is a MacGuffin, character is key here not narrative though it does satisfy on that score unlike the entertaining but labyrinthly scripted the big sleep of five years later in which bogey also played a fedora wearing hard-boiled pi and it's tremendously pleasing to discover that the protagonist's motivations are not at all what you expected simply it's excellent and well worth watching if you haven't done so get to it I don't know, this Sam Spade guy he's no Philip Marlowe is he? well actually he kind of pretty much is I'm not sure what to add to that. It is simply terrific. Um, I guess primarily because, um, well, Bogey's just terrific in this, isn't he? Incredibly watchable um, all the way throughout, which really kind of captures your attention, held it all the way throughout. Um, as you say, really refreshing to not really know where films are going. I'm sure I've seen this before, but like yourself, could not really remember what was going on in it. And it's uh, always nice to see that the way that these double crosses and... Um, shifting allegiances all kind of ultimately make sense but when you're watching it, you're never quite sure who's on whose side and quite what's going on so other than no one is quite what they seem you can't really quite uh, have much of a, a another basis for extrapolating a lot of character on it so it just certainly keeps you guessing and uh, all the way throughout Sydney Green Street's magnificent in it and uh, yes an awful lot to like in here and not a great deal to dislike um, hell of a showing uh, is able in front of and behind the camera. I guess the one thing I've maybe struggled with throughout all the Houston films we've seen, and it's still a fraction of them, um, but I I don't really feel I got a a sense of a John Houston film as, like, a style. He he doesn't have, like, a a lot of recognisable calling card, apart from the fact that he just seems to know how to pick really good narratives, um, which I obviously appreciate quite a lot. Um, But yeah, he seems to have a a knack for picking films where, you know, there's a lot of character work going on, there's a lot of interesting things going on, and uh, I don't know if he's necessarily giving a lot of sort of repeatable visual flair to anything in particular, but what what he's doing is creating an incredibly efficiently told narrative that keeps you guessing all the way throughout, and that's... uh, in evidence all the way from the start of uh, the Maltese Falcon. So yes, it's, it is a terrific work. And yes, I I concur. If you've not seen this, then why are you still listening to us talking about it? Go and watch it. Yes. Yeah, um, I, I think some of the, the greatest directors don't have a, a signature style in that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Um, some do. Um, I don't think greatest directors, perhaps quite the phrase I'd use, but like, like a Hitchcock, but you know a Hitchcock film's like... Yeah, you know a Hitchcock film, you know a Spielberg film when you see it. I don't think I would necessarily yeah, but, be able to claim that I knew a Houston film. Um, yeah, that's from, from, I think that's, yeah. that's good, actually. Yeah, yeah. Tell, yeah. Like, tell me, I've said this before, Scott, but like, tell me, what's a Martin Scorsese film? True. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can. But there mm-hmm. are maybe occasional traits, and that's something to do with who he works with as well. Like the some of the editing in Scorsese's films may have a bit of a trend to it. Um, yeah. Particularly like the Goodfellas did and the Thelma Schoenmacher did with like the music coming in just before the transition, that sort of thing, like the way it crosses over. Yeah. But for the most part, what's a Scorsese film? Because you're going to tell me that there's anything similar between Goodfellas and Silence or Kindon? <laughs> yeah. Right? There's not. So yeah, I think it's, it's more like that, but they just, they like to have a film this impactful, this good as your first film and not be one of those people I had like one film in them and they kind of disappeared. Yeah. Uh, it's just incredible. I just I was quite struck by the parallel of it being 1941, the year Citizen Game came out. Yeah, it's um, a banner year. Um, so I mean, he wasn't changing the language of cinema, Houston, but he was still making a hell of an impactful uh, movie at the time. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just such a, a great film. Like, and there are, there's a lot of bits where which is weird because it does not fit with the completely unnecessary text at the beginning, something I complained about in Key Largo as well. Yeah. But um, that it's trusting the the audience quite a lot. There's a great scene. Well, there are two great scenes that are sort of similar where Humphrey Bogart is visiting Sydney Green Street's Gutman in these uh, apartments, like his hotel room, whatever it is. Is it a hotel? It looks like one. I believe so, yes. Yeah, um... But it's like a suite that looks like it could be a flat, you know? Yeah. Uh, and he's in there, and the first time, this isn't the point I'm making about the trusting audience, but the first time when Bogey's in there and he goes, he acts all offended and trashes the place almost like he spits the cigar out, he throws the drink away. Um, and like sitting in the Green Street, he's thinking, oh, this guy's mad and stuff. And he walks out and he's like, the moment the door closes like that, it, his uh, the, the anger drops and he's smirking to himself. <laughs> that, it's so entertaining but yeah. when he returns to the the room later and the idea of like, like the private detective being drugged it's always in the often in that genre film yeah and you know Jackie Treehorn treats objects like women man <laughs> you know it's like uh, it's become sort of like a trope during the years that you know so many other films have done that sort of thing you know it's nothing but instead of it being like a, a like a less assured, a less skilled director uh, might just like have a close up of a glass or something like that. It's so much more subtle than that. Bogey has uh, um, Spade has already established in an earlier scene, you know that he's like, that drinking isn't a problem to him because Sydney Green Street says, "Ah, I appreciate a man who doesn't say when." He knows that he's like he could be. He doesn't have to watch himself under drinking stuff. So it suggests like, like <laughs> okay, they're setting up something with alcohol here. That's quite interesting. When he returns, he pours a massive measure for um, spade. He doesn't touch it. Yeah. And Sydney Green Street keeps looking at the glass, but it's more looking like a, just a glance at the side of his eye. And there's no zoom into the glass. There's no cut to a <laughs> close up of the glass or anything like that. So you could quite easily miss it. Yeah. While he's, uh, but then finally, when the conversation goes. And then uh, Boggy picks up the glass, and a few minutes later, he's knocked out. But it's like there's like, like a real tension there. But like it works as the scene is on. But then there's like so much subtle stuff in there that, um, like, when you watch it and you and you pay more attention, like, oh yeah, it's like look, he's trusting the audience. <laughs> I like this. Uh, so yeah, it's just it's a great. Uh, Sydney Green Street is such a great villain. He's so charismatic. Yeah, he would be a great Bond villain, I think. Like up there, like the really charismatic ones, it's like a, a real kind of swagger to him, and then just the, the the speech patterns they've given him, and like you know, the, the 
keep on people serving stuff in a way sort of like oh yes well played sort of fine job sort of that kind of thing it's just yeah. I don't know I really like it <laughs> um, and yeah so it really stands up it's and like the especially again in that genre the lack of guns is really refreshing and that's part of the character as well he talks about not liking them and he disarms people a couple of times but you know that's actually the hero isn't using guns yeah he's using his wits instead which is great yeah and there's some you know really funny moments as well too because when Peter Laurie and it's because I say that because it's quite a sort of grim and serious genre for the most part but there are like moments here and there's like simple bits of dialogue like when that little he calls him a kid god knows how old he actually was I can't judge anybody in mid 20th century films at all <laughs> you know he's um, he's tailing spade for gutman and it's like he pulls a gun off and he goes ah it's like the cheaper the crook the gaudier the patter <laughs> uh, lines like that but then bogey just laughing his head off and me too um at the point where he, he disarmed peter laurie um had the wee conversation with seemingly come to an agreement for some reason gives peter laurie his gun back and then he sticks him <laughs> up a second time yeah <laughs> But like the characters just like laughing like mad because he thinks, oh yeah, that, that, that was dumb. But also, I, I'll give a wee laugh to that, and that's, I find that really funny. <laughs> uh, it's it's an absolute classic, and yes, you should definitely be watching that. Yeah, there's not many films you get to the end of it, and uh, there's not even for picky bastards like us. There's not um, not really anything you want to pick a flaw with. So yeah, no, can't really like, beat it. So even like sort of explaining the plot. Um, which is effectively what he's doing away at the bit of the end, like how, how like he'd kind of sussed out the woman and the things she'd done wrong, how he'd suspect her, that sort of thing, or like any of the things that are going on at the end there. I was like, yeah, that's it's not Deus Ex and it's not like knowledge this person couldn't have or something. It just makes yeah. sense. And if you think, then you sort of wind it back in your head and it's like, yeah, there's nothing like contradicted that in his behaviour, his language in the rest of the film. Yeah. Never committed to things, never actually said anything that would make that stupid. Yeah. Uh, I do, I do like this film a great deal. So, which is what's quite weird, I guess. Then that a film which, in many ways, well, not started but sort of codified the film origin, film noir, film 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 noir genre, <laughs> <laughs> the film noir genre. Uh, then, within just under a, just over a decade, was sort of taking the piss out of it. That was weird. And co-written by Truman Capote of all people, Scott. So let's talk about Beat the Devil, which I'll admit I had never heard of until we're preparing for these couple of podcasts. Yes, me too. Uh, but with uh, Beat the Devil and with Humphrey Bogart in front of the camera, here is Billy Danruther, a formerly rich man now working well beneath his station, and John Houston behind the camera. And as you say, a script co-authored by Truman Capote, there's surely no way that Beat the Devil could go wrong. Is there? Well... I suppose the fact that, be honest, you've never heard of it before now, and apparently the studios did not think it was worth renewing the copyright on. Yeah, maybe something did go wrong, but let's let's find out. Uh, at any rate, uh, Dan Ruther is part of a loose confederation of other Houston regulars stuck in an Italian port waiting for the departure of the SS Nyanga, their ride through British East Africa, where they hope to strike it rich buying land laden with uranium. Again, Further support for the Houston careerist travel expenses theory. Um, Thank you. <laughs> his uneasy bedfellows are Robert Morley's Peterson, Peter Laurie's uh, Julius O'Hara, Ivor Bernard's Major Jack Ross, and Marco Tulli's Ravello. All fine character actors, rather underserved with characters of their own, so must make do with carrying theirs over from previous films. Also waiting are Dan Ruther's wife, Maria, Gina 
Lolo Bridgia, and in English cover, Harry and Gwendolyn Chelm, Edward Underdown and Jennifer Jones, who rather give the impression of being part of the landed gentry, although, as you might imagine this sort of thing, no one is quite what they seem. The four seem to get on well, and indeed Billy is soon uh, starts an affair with Gwendolyn, at more or less the same time that Maria and Harry start their own affair. After a strangely pointless diversion involving a car crash and the others mistakenly thinking that Billy and Peterson are dead, the ship is finally ready for departure. However, in the constrained confines of the cabins, tensions rise and tempers fray, particularly after Harry finds out and threatens to expose the scheme. Now, I'm not sure quite how much of a scandal that would really be, seeing as it appears to be to legally buy some land with money. But, at any rate, it's enough for Peterson to want Harry killed, although it appears that the dilapidated boat wants them all dead, causing them to abandon ship, wash ashore, and wind up in an Arab jail as things fall further apart. Uh, Now, despite the undoubted bona fides of the writing team for this, let's politely say that story is not the strongest card in Beat the Devil's deck. Thankfully, given the nature of this beast... It needs to be enough to hang a loose parody from and also some solid gags from. Although it hasn't managed to do that last part, which is maybe the biggest problem that the film has. Um, there are some positives in here to be sure, mainly a talented ensemble cast that, although wildly underserved by the script, have enough charisma to keep this engaging and um, enough to forgive the rather broadly sketched characters and gags. And while watching it, I didn't find it boring or insulting. However, when writing about it for these notes, uh, I'm not sure there's all that much to hear that I want to praise or indeed recommend. Uh, It's by no means awful, uh, but even if it's freely available on archive.org, I'm not sure it's really worth your time for all but the Houston or Bogart completionists. Yeah, it just did not do a lot for me. Um, I felt it should be funnier if that's what they're really going for. Uh, A lot of it kind of felt like um, when I got to the end of it, it's almost like they wrote an entire script of this and then went, oh, this is actually very good at all. Let's tweak a few bits and try and make it funny, like having one of the uh, Italian crew members come in and say, oh, there's lots of bad characters around, like mine. Ooh, lampshade hanging. Um, but uh, yeah, it just isn't funny enough to be the kind of satire that I think it needs to be if it's going to go for this. And it's not sort of competent enough for the kind of film noir type stuff for that to work either. So it's kind of falling between those two stools and not really doing a great deal for anyone. I can kind of see, I'm, I'm sure that it'll fall in the sweet spot for some people who will, you know, really latch onto it and really like it, but I think for broader audiences, uh, kind of forgetting about it is perhaps the best <laughs> the best medicine for it. I really liked it. Hmm? I actually thought it was really quite funny. Um, I'm not convinced it works particularly well as a satire. Well, actually, I haven't said that. No, maybe it does. Because it's got a lot of the same things, but it's just sort of... Dumb. I, I guess it's more of an absurd <laughs> take rather than a satirical take, necessarily. Um, yeah. Because you've got this, the idea of, like, the the untrustworthy woman who's, like, causing people to be in trouble. But in this case, it's just a this mad woman who's making up all these mental stories for, like, why not? Yes. Uh, and I found that, I was quite tickled by that. And then the other thing is, like, kind of, it's a sort of play on the the perception of the actor as well, though. But with um, Peter Laurie deciding for some reason that he's called O'Hara, hmm. and the Italian guy in the, par- in the party insisting on referring to him as O'Hara. Yeah, and that the, their party is absolutely a reference to the Maltese Falcon with the fat man Robert Morley, and then you've got. Peter Laurie, and then the creepy little racist bugger. Yes. <laughs> he was an unpleasant character. 
Yes, um, I wasn't really expecting a Hitler apologist in this film, but you know that's no, that's, that's that's cool, I guess. That's the thing I was going to mention. Scott. This film genuinely shocked me. Um, <laughs> so I was I was laughing in that sort of awkward way, which I think is probably the intention. But it was more like it was the the words that he was coming out with at the time. This is only it's less than a decade after the end of World War Two, and you yeah. have this card to say, and I quote. Hitler had the right idea. Keep them in their place. Say what you want about want about Hitler. He had the right idea. Hitler and Mussolini, those were the men. <laughs> and like it's kinda of like it's so inappropriate and and it's kinda of, it shocked me and it made me laugh that kinda of, I say that sort of awkward way. I'm sure that's the point, but I was like in a nineteen fifty three film. <laughs> really? Wow. I, I did not expect that. He's not meant to be a likable character or a hero or anything like that. He's a, a creepy Too debugger. soon. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that was weird. And then the person there, I couldn't decide if they were meant to be a joke or not. I think a lot of people might have, but like Peter Laurie said here, a lot of German people um, take the name O'Hara in Chile. It's, um, it's a completely normal name, but at the same point, like, one of the most famous um, Chileans in history is called Bernardo Higgins. <laughs> he was um, during the kind of Simon Bolivar's time, the, the oh. um, fight to free Latin America from um, Spanish rule. There was a Chilean called Bernardo Higgins, whose father was a Irishman. Um, like the, the name Bernardo Higgins really amuses me. But like, so it's real, and it was, he was Chilean. So, like, is that a reference to that? A bit weird if it was, but and it's like it's only sort of half a joke. And it, so I was a wee bit unsure about that, but uh, yeah, I just find it funny. Um, not fantastically so. Not sure it works that well as a as a satire. I just found it entertaining, and again, a lot of that's probably Harvey uh, Bogart. I just think he's great. Yeah. Again, it's like the third time at least on this um on our podcast I've said that I could watch Harvey Bogart in anything. He's so entertaining. Yeah. Although there, there's one point and again that's something I've said a lot too. There's a point where he's joking about, you know, uh, like if I was like sixty years old or something, like are you not? <laughs> yeah. Um Okay. <laughs> I I can't tell your age at all, sir. <laughs> Other like, strange sort of things that really added into the film. The only problems I had was like, Jennifer Jones, who's not English, um, who sounds English for about ten percent of the time, <laughs> and the rest is in some sort of sliding scale between English and Oklahoma, which is I think where she's from. Yeah. Uh, so that that's <laughs> that was weird. There was no particular reason for that character to be English, I guess. The husband, yeah, not her. But yeah, it's it's a slight thing, but I still quite enjoyed it. Whether it's worth watching again, unless you're a completionist, probably not. Well, I mean, as I say, the good news is it's completely free. Um, Copyrights expired. Go nuts. Take it. Download it. Remix it. Did you watch then the original version of one that's been available for quite a few years? Did I have a voiceover? I did not watch. I believe there was a 4K restoration done five years ago or something, relatively recently. But no, it was not that one. It was uh, one of the more original kind of versions of it. Yeah, I was wondering about this because I watched the restoration um, and it looked fantastic, which is nice given the shot a large part of it in southern Italy, which is beautiful. So, <laughs> and again, really proves your thesis, Scott. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was just wondering because I know that it'd been like that's the version, that, the version with the two minutes less and like the voiceover has been the only version people have seen for years. Was I watched the restoration? With no voiceover, and I'm wondering whether that would have changed my opinion. Looks like I just don't like them. 
Yes, I don't remember it being particularly voiceover heavy. So I, I don't think it made a lot of difference, but uh, 4K is better than uh, not 4K. So, you know, <laughs> if you get a chance to watch the restoration, I guess that's probably the way to go. But. Yeah, I mean, it did look lovely. But again, it's mm-hmm. for the time and resources for that film, it's it's weird that that's the film they spent yeah. the time and resources yeah. <laughs> of this 4K restoration on. When there are so many films out there that are probably in dire need of it that are, you know, better or more interesting or more important. Again, absolutely not a bad film. Thoroughly enjoyed it, but it's just I was really puzzled as to why it's that film yeah. that got that treatment. <laughs> I get a film that's sort of, and maybe because it was in the public domain, but largely fallen out of public knowledge. I think it's it's very much a specialist knowledge type film. Yeah, yeah. Um, not that you know you should only preserve or restore like the most popular films, not by any um, means, but it's just like. Of all the films, why that one? It's like basically <laughs> falling down the great cultural memory hole, I'm sure. Look, if Robinson Crusoe on Mars can, be, can, can <laughs> go to the Criterion Collection, then anything's fair game. Although, yeah, I mean, the Criterion Collection selection criteria sometimes concerns me. <laughs> and by sometimes, I mean always. Yes. <laughs> Well, that will wrap us up for today. And if you would like to get in touch with us about this or any other matter, then please do at podcast at com on the emails, at FudsOnFilm on the Twitters, or facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm on your old Facebooks. And until such time as we are together again, I shall bid you adieu. And I'm sure that Drew will do too. Bye-bye. And also, please don't take me saying that Hitler quote out of context. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>